my name is David Pynchon. I'm a, I'm a public health doctor in the English health system, and currently I'm director of the Sustainable Development Unit, which works across the NHS, public health, and social care. In fact, across the whole health and care system, really. And our role in this small policy unit is to help the health service not only step up to the mark, but exceed it in terms of what does a sustainable health service, a health system, a health and care system look like uh, uh, both today and in the future. So can you tell us what uh, the sustainable development unit of the NHS does and what, what sort of what powers it has? We've been going now for about five or six years. What we originally started to do on the back of the Climate Change Act is to look at formally the legal obligations of the health service, specifically the NHS in the first instance, and that was to look at all the places where unnecessary environmental harm was being done by the, the NHS. And we started with a carbon reduction strategy with about 10 themes, 50 recommendations, where actually the health system, the NHS, could visibly reduce its harmful environmental impact, specifically around carbon emissions and specifically with climate change in mind. Uh, so we ensured that the NHS was part of the carbon reduction commitment. We started raising the expectation that all NHS organisations would raise awareness about climate change and health and sustainability. We started expecting every NHS organisation to have a sustainable development management plan. Um, we started to uh, put out the call that this should be embedded in the regulatory structure. All fairly formal stuff in the, in the first instance. But actually, as I hope we'll go on to discuss in this podcast... There are so many other things that the health service could be doing in a very positive way, not just in its in the sense of the NHS being a large organisation like any other organisation, but actually in a very positive asset based approach in promoting health in the best sense of that phrase, rather than just <clears throat> as a large illness treating machine. So that's the that's the transition, if you like, we've been making as a health and care system over the past, let's say, two years, is moving beyond the NHS as an organisation into public health, which is actually where I'm from, where I was trained in a sense, to look at what can local government, what can the social care system, what can the NHS, what can civic society to be, do, be doing around health, sustainability and climate change. So this month we've been looking at the the, the potential of transition and, and public health to really uh, overlap, uh, and in many ways there's, there's there's many ways that that does. And I was in Jamaica Plain in Boston uh, last year, and Transition Jamaica Plain were in uh, said we started a process of thinking about uh, of, of asking what would a cancer-free Jamaica Plain look like by 2030 and that actually most of the things that you would do to make it a cancer-free place would be the same that you would do to make it a low-carbon place, a more resilient place. How do you see that sort of, that overlap, that coming together uh, between the two things? Well, you're absolutely right. It's a very strong message and it's, a, it's, one, it's one thing 
it's one lens through which the health service can really add value in that to, 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 to make this transition into a low carbon sustainable world, the health system doesn't actually need to do anything different. It just needs to do what it's already doing much better and in a transformationally better way because so many of exactly as you say so many of the things that we would do to make health better even if climate change were not happening give us so many short-term health benefits that is there there are very few trade-offs and I, I guess in the in public health terms there are two very important very obvious examples of that the first is in traveling. You know, never before have we moved our bodies around the world so much without moving our bodies. You know, we, it, is, it is absolutely extraordinary we do that. And if you think about low-carbon transport systems, they both serve the needs of us in terms of climate change and low-carbon transition very well. But they also serve our immediate health very well in that we would raise our our, our physical activity rates much, much more and leading to a, to a reduction in, in diabetes and heart disease and obesity and all those other things with, which we're, <clears throat> we're blessing ourselves with. The other area is clearly around food. I mean, we know that a, a low-carbon food system, which is, which is appropriate for the future, which is essential for the future, is actually very beneficial for our health now. So the, this issue of co-benefits what's good for the future is also good for now, is a very important message and a very important framing of the significant overlap between public health and the transition into a low-carbon society. You, uh, you wrote in a, one of the articles that, that, that you sent me, you said there can be no better sector and no better time to set clear examples of our collective responsibility to the future. What's your, uh, how would you describe your vision of what a, a low carbon resilient public health system would look like? Let's start with the NHS and move on to public health. I guess my vision of the NHS is that it should be less a, an, an illness service and more a health service. Now that sounds very cheesy, but what I mean by that is that currently the NHS largely treats preventable disease. Much of what the NHS does, it reacts to preventable disease. So if you walk around a large hospital or you sit in a GP's surgery, a lot of the stuff you'll see that people bring along is preventable. And therein lies the vision for the NHS, which is not to be bigger, which is, but to be better and often smaller. And now that's quite a politically controversial issue that we actually need a smaller NHS and a larger public health system because we have to bear in mind that most health is won or lost outside the formal health care system and that's why this is such a good time to remember that the epidemic of preventable diseases like diabetes and obesity the fact that we have a much more different range of health conditions out there such as people living with long-term conditions demographically we have a much older um, uh, profile of people the health service should not be sitting back waiting for people to come to them with preventable disease the vision should be that we should be proactively supporting people to be independent and healthy and resilient 
in their own places, uh, in their own homes or wherever they live. Now, that's quite a radical change in the whole business model for the NHS. And it is not just driven by climate change or the need to conserve resources. It is, it's driven by technology, you know, giving people much more control over their health, over their health information. It's driven by the fact that actually people can largely look after their own health and illnesses if we are less parental as a health service and we help people stay healthy and when we get unavoidably ill, we support them as much as possible. We'll always need hospitals and GPs and nurses, but the idea that bigger is better is not sustainable economically, it's not sustainable environmentally, and it's certainly not sustainable financially. And it's not what people want. People don't always now see the the mecca as being, I must go to hospital. People realise that actually hospitals are as dangerous sometimes as they are health enhancing. So I think we're, as public, much more savvy. Now, all this as a vision gives a much bigger vision to the public health system, which is not the deficit-based model of, oh, there are people out there who are ill, we must do something about them. We have a very paternalistic um, approach, I think, in the in the health service, in that we do things to people, but we rarely do things for people, and we almost never do things with people. So the idea of an asset-based approach uh, uh, to a to the populations that we purport to serve as a public service is quite radical, and and we can we can sort of everybody would nod if you said that, but. When you think, what does this actually mean on the ground? How do we, in as we make this transition to a sustainable world, prevent preventable illnesses? How do we support people in their own homes? How do we enhance the social value and social capital and the, the resilience of local communities as a health service? Now, that, that's quite revolutionary. And I don't think we are at all established as a as an, either an NHS or a public health system or as a social care system, to be truly asset-based um, in terms of developing the right conditions for people to naturally live healthier lives. That's not the way the last 60 years have, have, have brought us to this point. I wrote the the kind of editorial piece that I wrote uh, to frame the, the theme this month was about what would a transition hospital like look like? And arguing that you know you could imagine uh, a hospital where the, the the grounds that are currently just contracted out to someone to come in with a lawnmower once a month actually are turned into a, a market garden, which is creating employment and occupational therapy and good food and changing the climate in the hospital. Hospital could be a, a community power station. Its services could be let to a community co-op, which is also working in other ways. You know, by changing what it does. It models those things much, much better. And now through the, um, I can't remember what they're called now, something, the, the commissioning groups that the hospitals have yeah, that can bring yeah. those services, then in theory, uh, those organisations have the would have the potential to make some of those shifts if they chose to. Do you think that the, the obstacle to really embedding public health in the NHS in that kind of very practical way that's rooted in a local community is is prevented from happening by a lack of vision or a lack of agency i think it's much more the lack of agency and and probably the lack 
the phrase I use is the lack of aligned incentives. All the things you've described about what hospitals could be as health-enhancing civic structures and civic systems, about could they supply energy through district community heating systems, biomass, combined heat and power? Could they provide allotments? Could they provide green spaces? Could they provide... Um, uh, places where people could actually see what it looks like to live healthy lives. Could they have, you know, good food shops in their in their concourses? Could they have fair trade coffee in their concourses? All of those things sound quite visionary, but actually, all of those things, every single one of those things, is happening now, but sporadically in isolated examples. So we know all these things are possible. There's nothing to stop any of these things happening because. You know, as we often say, the future has already arrived. It's just a little unevenly distributed. So that is perfectly possible. But we do not see at a system-wide level. What we see is stars in a night sky, not dawn, to be, to be blunt about it. Why does it not happen? Part of it is cultural, that we are a, a rescue system, that we wait until people get ill, um, and we know that hospitals, for instance, are, are actually quite unhealthy places to be, both for patients and staff. And then they're, It's quite a brutal environment to be in. Some people sometimes say if you're not ill when you go into a hospital, you certainly are when you come out of them. So, you know, people put up, put up with it because they feel like some good is being done. There are some agency issues, though, that are really crucial to sealing this culture and not liberating it into the sort of vision that you and I are discussing now. Let me give you a, a, at least one example. One example is that, and it, it, it feel, it's fairly crude, but it doesn't help the transition to a much more positive health-promoting vision. And it is this. We tend to pay hospitals and we tend to pay professionals in hospitals for activity, not outcomes. So <clears throat> a crude example is that the more you do, the more you get paid. The more operations that are done, the more the hospital gets paid. So that means that all these visionaries who are working in hospitals but are promoting care closer to home, they are losing the trust, they're losing the hospital money. And that is not a good idea uh, for the hospital because they can see that although there's an obvious merit to keeping preventable illnesses away from hospitals, promoting health, promoting resilience, adding social value in the community, they look at their financial bottom line and think, if we don't get the patients through our hospital, we ain't going to get paid. And um, we'll have to think very carefully about um, downsizing, closing wards, or even closing the hospital. And that is seen as a sign of failure, sadly, not as a sign of success. Very rarely would you get a Secretary of State for Health standing up in the House of Commons and saying, I'm proud to announce we've done fewer operations this year because we have needed to do fewer, because we have prevented this uh, whole range of preventable illnesses. Normally, politicians will congratulate themselves on the NHS undertaking more activity, which is not necessarily the vision we want. So there's one example of agency which doesn't help this vision to a a really quite radical 
but utterly logical reworking and reframing of the business model of the health system. You wrote that uh, the, you wrote the system needs to help build resilience into people, families, and communities, particularly in the light of increasingly in, of increasingly frequent weather. Mm. Uh, this depends on supporting effective networks within communities, locally and globally, that enable the health system to provide support and services. Uh, with people rather than just two people. Mm. So if people are reading this who are part of a of an active community and lots of projects going on, what's the best way for them to kind of reach out and try and, and interact and build those <coughs> relationships with, with local health providers? Yeah, it's a very good question. I mean, it's important to remember that most health care is not delivered in hospitals, just in the same way as most health is won or lost outside the healthcare system altogether. I mean, primary health care... That's healthcare that's delivered outside hospitals in GPs and elsewhere through community, you know, pharmacists or community psychiatric nurses or district nurses is absolutely the root of where a transition health system would be based. Um, so, so, so the concept of so, so, so the, the practical answer to your question is. If one, as a citizen, feels very strongly about a, a much better model of health and healthcare, then logically the first people to engage are one's gps one's health primary health care centers and and there are an enormous number of um gps in fact the royal college of general practitioners is one of the royal colleges that's actually devoted a lot of time to thinking what would a sustainable health system look like because they know very well that uh, much of it would be outside hospitals in fact much of it would be outside primary health care uh, let me give you a very quick example of that. Some GPs are uh, very, very good at allowing people to phone them up and do an enormous number of their consultations over the telephone. And that allows people to break out of this catch-22 where they have to go and see their GP to, re to, wonder, to, to establish whether they need to go and see their GP. Um, so the idea of using fairly simple 19th century technology in the 21st century to bring care much closer to home is, is one that is very powerful, but it is very sporadically used. Some GPs use, have over 50% of their calls done by telephone, consultations done by telephone. Some hardly use it at all. And sadly, variation is something that the NHS does very well, and, and we shouldn't do variation. If we know what the best way in which we can take care much more directly and much earlier to people, then we should be doing it more universally. Other examples is that when, when we know, and I think some of this evidence comes from the sort of social capital that's much more um, obvious in, in transition communities, is that in communities which are very fragmented, where people don't know their neighbours, where people don't have these formal and informal networks of, of support, when things go wrong, and sometimes quite trivially wrong, where traditionally they would have leant over the garden fence or spoken at the coffee morning or gone to speak to their vicar or other faith leader, they would go immediately to their GP. And that, that's completely inappropriate. It's disempowering. It's not local. It, it doesn't breed a sort of mutual trust and reciprocity on which we know that healthy communities and resilient communities are based upon. So primary care is, is one of the answers to your question, Rob.
And uh, you wrote in, uh, uh, in in something else that I read. You said the default location of healthcare should be at home. Where the but the the uh, the trend in uh, in the health service has been has been very much towards centralising into sort of bigger and bigger regional hospitals and so on. Is there a uh, is there a case? Do you think are are you arguing for sort of uh, localization of, of 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 healthcare in that way. Yes, this is a tricky one. It's a tricky one both technically and um, and politically as well. There's no easy answer to this, but probably my best guess is that many services should be taken much closer to home. There's no doubt that we do a lot in hospitals that actually we could do much closer to home. There's no doubt about that. I mean, I think every, the, the thing is that we have invested so much in the staffing and the infrastructure, it's quite a difficult thing to change. Conversely, there are probably some things which we should centralise. So some things ought to be... The sort of things that ought to be centralised, if we know, if we have a superb hospital that does hip replacements superbly well you want to travel to that hospital is you're probably only going to have it done once or maximum twice in your life so you should be prepared to travel to the very best place to do it what we tend to have is a sort of sad compromise where most hospitals address most conditions but we know very well that if there's a specific condition especially a specialized condition like let's say heart surgery in young children which is a very well-known story that actually you really want to go to the very best places and we probably only need a few of those in a country the size of England you do not want every hospital dabbling with children's heart surgery so you will want to concentrate some services which are highly specialized but on the other hand if we have other services like blood pressure management diabetes rheumatology Many other things should be taken much closer to home uh, and certainly the preventable issues should, and certainly the public health issues around smoking, physical activity, excessive drinking, those sort of services. We shouldn't even medicalize those. These are not medical issues. These are social issues. They're political issues. They're economic issues. So the, 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 the short answer to your, your, your absolutely appropriate challenge, Rob, is some things highly specialised we should concentrate and you should should travel further to them. Most things you should travel less far and it should be done default in the house or primary care. Primary care should be done in the house. Secondary care should be done at your general practice. Specialist care should be done at the most appropriate hospital. You shouldn't have every hospital doing everything. It's just not safe. It's not cost effective. It's not sustainable, and it doesn't have good long term outcomes. And um, the uh, in the recent sort of discussions about uh, Pfizer and AstraZeneca, and you know the the uh, the carbon, the embodied carbon in modern medicines, uh, and the you you wrote that uh, doctors over medicate almost all human conditions. Mm. Uh, in terms of uh, one of the key ways in which the NHS could reduce its carbon footprint, is is reducing medication a key part of that, do you think? Yeah, I think it's, it's, I'm not sure it's reducing medication. It's realising, it's understanding that there is not a pill for every ill. 
and that pharmaceuticals are not the only intervention that have that are, that can be effective. I mean, like most powerful things, pharmaceuticals in the right place are very very effective. And I I suspect I wouldn't be alive if it weren't for pharmaceuticals. So it's just that there are many. First of all, there are many other very effective interventions like talking therapies, psychological therapies, cognitive behavioral therapy, many other therapies, non-pharmaceutical, which are equally effective and sometimes more. And don't forget physical activity, you know, fulfilling brisk walking a number of times a week is a very, very effective way of keeping well, both physically and mentally. Secondly, we waste. It's not that pharmaceuticals in themselves are bad. It's just that we waste them by the ton load. Because again, coming back to your earlier question about agency, we, we, there are no the very few incentives in the system to, to have a very much more judicious use of, use of pharmaceuticals. Um, you know, we, 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 we prescribe pharmaceuticals like there's no tomorrow. And, and if we do that, well, there will be no tomorrow because of the resource use, because of the post-use environmental effects, because of the huge financial cost of um, um, pharmaceuticals. Now, one of the big challenges in terms of a transition to a more sustainable system, Rob, is that, and pharmaceutical companies know this, is that sadly, many of the ways we've evolved the health system tend to monetize illness, i.e. the system makes money out of people being ill. Very rarely do people make money out of people being healthy. It's a much more difficult um, concept to monetize health. You, you can do it. You can reward systems for improving health, but it's very rare. There are instances around the world, both in poor countries and wealthy countries, where that happens. But for instance, pharmaceutical companies, if you're a pharmaceutical company, you will make a lot of money if you invest a lot of R&D and develop a very effective drug that treats a very treatable disease. But how about you know, paying pharmaceutical companies not to produce drugs to treat diabetes, but paying pharmaceutical companies to, uh, on the basis of preventing diabetes? How about that? How good would that look like? That would be a much more circular economy within the healthcare system. So and it's, it's perfectly understandable why we, we use so many pharmaceuticals, because they are very, very effective when used correctly. But we do waste them hugely with great environmental and financial cost. Um, so we, we need to get it in proportion. And we just need to raise awareness that there are other and better ways of doing some of these things um, rather than spending you know, nearly half our primary care budget on pharmaceuticals. You wrote action, good for health, good for the health service and good for the future. Am I missing something? I, I wonder, uh, in terms of the, th the thing that's really fascinating us this month, in terms of whether rather than seeing transition as an environmental process or as a community process, we could see transition as a public health process, uh, or as social medicine, as it's sometimes referred to, mm. what your thoughts would be in terms of the best approach that we might take to really uh, expand that argument? Yeah, it's a very good question. And I think you're, you're alluding to an incredibly important issue about how we frame this with our, with our friends, with our families, with our colleagues, with other, with other people. And that is that um, 
health is something we all value hugely, but we only tend to value it when we don't have it. We tend to, you know, very rarely do you wake up in the morning and think, yippee, I don't have a toothache. So it's when you don't have health or where you do have pain that you realize what it's like. Um, I think I think essentially what this what this means for the system is that there are just huge benefits, uh, obvious benefits for health in terms of framing lack of sustainability. I'll give you one example of that, which which brought it home to me very much in the United States. Air pollution legislation is very powerful in many ways, more powerful than it is in the UK. And one of the reasons it is said that is the case is that air pollution is not framed in the United States as an environmental hazard. It is framed directly as a health hazard. And I think this is one of the issues about the environment and environmentalism in general, is environmentalism is a rather inconvenient middle, middle thing. People say, okay, so that is an environmental hazard. Uh, earlier this year, the, when the IPCC released many of its reports, and and I was giving interviews like this one with journalists, I was very struck by some very smart journalists who who said to me, "This is really interesting because we were very well aware that climate change was a was a very big environmental hazard, a very big environmental issue, but we didn't realise it was a health issue." Now, that struck me as really extraordinary. I had taken it for granted that everybody sees environmental hazards as health hazards, but clearly not. So I, I, it's made me ponder very deeply whether to use in the environment as the, the lens through which we see all these things may for many people not be the best way to do it. And we ought to see things, you know, we ought to frame unsustainability as a health issue we ought to frame climate change as a as a direct health issue and despite the lancet one of the premier medical journals in the world framing climate change as the most serious health threat of the 21st century you still meet people who i would expect to know better not to have ever considered climate change to be a health issue an environmental issue, possibly, but not a health issue. And that strikes me as very odd. But that just goes to show that we're all prisoners of our experience and we're all, we're all prisoners of our language. So I just I guess just to just to finish off, if you had any last thoughts for for people who are involved in transition, who are thinking along these lines or any thoughts of kind of uh, practical next steps that were, that might be taken in terms of. Uh, trying to bring these two strands closer together and more overlapped. You know, that, yeah. that idea that sort of, I suppose, what's exciting, I think, uh, in, in transition groups is really that idea of uh, community resilience and, and more localised economies as a form of economic development. And we're seeing now in Brixton and Totnes and other places really making that case and starting to model that on the ground through new enterprises, new food businesses, communities uh, becoming their own developers, their own energy companies, that kind of thing. If we really wanted to make the mm. case in a quite a high profile way and say a community energy company is good for public health, uh, uh, local food connecting with local for all those things. Mm. What's the best way, do you think, to make that case really persuasive? Yeah. I wish I knew. I mean, it is a $64,000 question. 
and I would love to know. My my guess is that we need to think and talk and conceptualize health in a different way than we've normally done. We've normally think about health as not being ill, but we know that health and illness are not the opposite. There are plenty of healthy people who are not well. There are plenty of people who are, let's call, let's say, disabled or handicapped or perfectly healthy. It, it's, it seems to be reasonably clear now from the point of view of local communities that your health, and by health I mean people who, have, who value the lives they lead, people who have reason to value the lives they lead, not just living without mental illness or physical illness, but living truly fulfilling, meaningful, connected lives, depend on for roughly four things, if you put things like your genes aside. One is, you know, do you have a house? Do you have somewhere to live? Secondly, do you have a job or you're in education or do you have a fulfilling role in your community? Uh, and I guess thirdly, are you connected socially? Do you have friends? Do you have a community you're part of? And the fourth would be, do you have access to services which are the icing on the cake for health, which deliver things which none of those first three can do? Now, and that's about social care, it's about welfare, it's about health care. Now, if you, uh, it, it includes culture and heritage and libraries and all those other things which make life worth living. If you take that as your concept of public health or community health or holistic health or health in the broadest sense, then it's absolutely clear that public health is the by far the best investment we could make in local, meaningful, resilient, sustainable communities where it is just a much better place to live. I think part of the challenge is that we're so addicted to what we currently know that we don't have the vision to, to see that it, it could be much better. It could be so much better for the present and for the future. And I think you alluded earlier to it that sometimes we do lack vision and we do lack courage in that things do not have to be this way. And, and, and to live sustainable lives, we don't have to, you know, resort to, you know, living in caves. We can, there, there can be very much better ways in which to live, which have the great added advantage of being future proof. And um, that linking of all those issues directly with health and maybe bypassing the environment word may actually be a one way in which, you know, public health practitioners, public health professionals, people who are public health minded might be able to make that connection and make that frame and engage politicians, that engage policymakers, that engage the public and certainly would engage professionals. Here in Totnes, we've got a, it's a very interesting period of time. You know, we're just about to, we're just about to relaunch the local currency that we started here a while ago, mm. but with a full range of notes, really beautiful, proper notes. We're, right. we're going right. to be a pilot for uh, a government um, program to, uh, <clears throat> to, trial, to trial the uh, electronic currency that they have in Bristol and Brixton here. Mm. And if it works, with the support of the Bristol Pound team, and if it works, then they're going to put a million pounds worth of funding into rolling it out all over the place. Mm. We've got the, the Atmos project, which we've been working on for seven years to try and bring an eight-acre derelict site in town into community ownership. Uh, we're about to sign the contracts on that uh, in a few weeks. There's a really good project linking the town up 
with local farms around and some really interesting stuff happening with public health in terms of an initiative called Caring Town Totnes where we've got uh, where we're bringing together on several occasions uh, all the different people who provide care in the town, all the t- diversity of bodies who mm. are having their funding cut and bringing them all together and saying, how can we all work together? How can it all fit into the wider mm. transition work? <clears throat> and so it feels like there's a there's something really tangible starting to emerge in terms of modelling transitions a form of economic development, yeah. but also as a different approach to to health which is very exciting so I'll, I'll i'll keep you posted yeah i'd love to i mean that issue about carers is really the, the caring agencies is really important it's really important to remember that the vast majority of caring is not done through the formal service so it's really important to bring those all those agencies together which are really struggling but one of the things we is probably true is those agencies could probably multiply their effect not by doing direct caring but by caring for carers, by supporting carers who are doing it anyway, those are family and friends and next door neighbours and everything. That's, that's the place where caring can be really... And some of the dementia services in the United States have been revolutionised, not through the formal care system, but by, for instance, social networking of realising there's another carer living 400 yards away who you could cox and box with and support each other. So sometimes it's supporting of carers, and it's fascinating. Not all carers, not all caring charities are very open to this, and it because it's really it's rather threatening to their business model. Anyway, it's something I'd love to learn about what you're doing because you're one of the you know transition communities are one of the few places that have the opportunity and the the convening power to pull together these really diverse diverse groups of people. Mm. The other thing I wanted to, just having read your book, one of the things I think is really important about transition communities, uh, and I can't remember whether you refer to it at all, is this issue of you need, one needs to be ready for change when other people are ready for change. And one of the things I've always wanted to see is the natural experiment where there are real crises, because crises are very big learning events, where someone says, hey, that's interesting. Why all these transition towns, they seem to come through this relatively unscathed. Why was that? You know, I always think we need crises that raise awareness at a maximum level, but actually do the minimum damage to killing people or or wounding people so that they raise awareness. But, you know, we know that even with, um, you know, Superstorm Sandy, sadly, very sadly, Things got back to normal far too quickly. There wasn't a step change. It wasn't a sort of, um, it didn't change the model. And, you know, one of the really sad things is that so much federal funding went into returning things exactly to normal. And it sadly didn't give people the opportunity to say, actually, something must be done. We ought to have a step change in how we do these things. 